This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome in everyone to The Deciding Point, our brand new Cracked Rackets video series breaking down the biggest stories from throughout the professional tennis world. Now, how this video is going to differ from our podcast, we're going to keep things quick. We're going to break down the five biggest storylines in tennis in any given week. Sometimes that means we're going to talk about results. Sometimes that means we're going to talk about some controversy. Sometimes that means we're just going to have some fun. But overall, we're going to run through a fast four format, four points on the four biggest storylines, and then we'll have our deciding point, our final argument where we will have some fun, get into it with our guests every given week and joining me for our first episode of this show. And it's only fitting that he's our guest to kick things off. You know him as our crack rackets do everything. Former Denison men's tennis grade, forefather of the forehand slice, James Foster McDonald. Jamie, welcome to the deciding point. How are you doing today? Appreciate it. Now it's it's a fun one. Obviously, you and I have been sort of mapping these things out for a while now. Listen, a podcast is a lot of fun, but you know what's even more fun? A nice video. So some video content that'll make Westoff happy. Hopefully, it makes the viewers and the audience happy. It's a win-win. Yeah, and of course, when you forgot to mention, this will make our boss Dalton quite happy. And when Dalton's happy, everyone at Crack Rackets is happy. So with that in mind, let's get into the biggest stories. Again, fast four format, ending with our deciding point. Let's start with point number one. I think the biggest storyline in tennis this week, Jamie. Andre Rublev, another title for him in Vienna. He now moves to 19-1 and since the start of the Hamburg Open right after Rome. He has won three consecutive ATP 500 events this season. He is now the ATP leader in both titles and wins on the year. Jamie, I would make the case Andre Rublev is your 2020 ATP player of the year. Would you agree or disagree with that point? Disagree overall. Uh, maybe if you if you make a stipulation in there that they have to be a certain age or younger, um, I, I can get behind that. You know, especially as of late, he's just been so fun to watch. But um, when you think about it, you know, the biggest titles, talking about the majors that were played, you know, the one that sprung wide open, you know, t- team ended up winning, that being the U.S. Open. So I don't know if I'm ready to make Rublev the player of the year, but it, it, certainly in the recent few weeks, absolutely. Um, he's been the player to watch. He's been so much fun. Yeah, I think this award probably comes down to three other guys plus Rublev. You have Team, who is the best at the Grand Slams this year, quarterfinals, finals, champion. You have Djokovic, who started out the year freaking undefeated. And then, of course, you have Nadal, who, when healthy, proved once again he is the guy to beat on clay. But player of the year goes to the player who had the best season from start to finish. And he's tied with Djokovic, but 39 wins on the year. He's got the most titles. And it's not like they're coming at fluff events, right? Yeah, he won his first two to start the season, but he's won three. Three ATP 500 this year. Clearly, he's taken the biggest jump of any of the young players, but I just think week in, week out during this 2020 season, what are we going to remember it for? And I think the thing we'll remember most is that it was the year of Andre Rublev. And if he has a strong last three weeks to the season, maybe finals of the year-end championship, I think he solidifies it. But I like him as player of the year. I'm sticking with this take. 
listen, it feels good. It feels much, you know, it feels much better to give that award to a player like Andre Rublev um, instead of Djokovic because A, it's boring, and B, we just saw Djokovic tank so hard against Sinego. Um So at this point, it's really hard to root for that. But no, I mean, Rublev has looked really good, and, and let's hope that 2021 sort of, you know, of course, gets back a little bit to more normal tennis, uh, but also holds the same um, in, in terms of that momentum for young guys like Andre Rublev, who were just so fun to watch. Completely agree with you, Jamie. And with that in mind, let's move to point number two, because the only guy who, in my opinion, could probably catch Rublev would be Rafa Nadal if he goes on to win Paris this year and then goes and wins the year-end championship, something he's never done before in his career. Then I think you have a case for Rafa. But you look at this draw in Paris, Jamie, and, you know, initially my reaction, because we saw a lot of withdrawals, right? There's no Shapovalov, there's no uh, Fonini, there's no Gael Monfils, there's no Grigor Dimitrov, all of these different players pulling out for different reasons, but, you know, you look at these seeds 1 through 16, you've got Rafa at the top, you've got all of these different players in action, Stefano Tsitsipas, Daniil Medvedev, Andre Rublev, Alex Zverev, this draw feels pretty loaded, I think I was wrong, initially my reaction was, is this one of the weaker draws in Paris history, I'm starting to lean towards no, it is not. I mean, I think it depends how you look at it. I think it continues um, a recent trend that we've seen in 2018, 2019 of it being very sort of next gen and young gun heavy, which obviously for you and me is is, is a delight. Um, you know, in terms of weaker ones, you and I had the had the homework of looking up some of the ones from the last you know decade or so. And um, yeah, I think it's safe to say we've seen weaker draws in Paris than than the 2021. Yeah, I mean, the one that stands out, 2017, right? I know that's one you looked at closely. That's yeah. one Jack Sock ended up as champion, and we had a, fun, a ton of fun with that here at Cracked Rackets. But, you know, one that stands out to me, 2012, you had a Jersey Janowitz versus David Ferrer final. The semifinals featured a qualifier in Janowitz, an unseated player in Jill Simone, and a wild card in Michael Lodra. I mean, you look at the top 16 seeds. Again, a few players are missing, but maybe not the depth of your usual end-of-year Masters event certainly you know one through 16 this event is as good as any yeah and look you mentioned it all the withdrawals that happened the Paris Masters is you know no stranger to all of those sort of withdrawals and walkovers that happen right it's the end of the season people are banged up especially like Nadal I mean he's pulled out of this tournament multiple times so um, not really much of a surprise in terms of seeing any of those people leave the draw but yeah I mean it's a really fun field and as I mentioned before it's really young um, and that's sort of the great one, right? You mentioned No Shapovalov, but in recent years, we've seen people like Hashinov you know, win this event. He won that in 2018. Um, you know, Shapovalov got to the finals of this thing last year. And so it's becoming, you know, a more prevalent theme each year um, that these Masters 1000s just get younger and younger. And, and, you know, outside the big three, of course, I mean, it's, it's just a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, my dark horse for this week, Borna Chorich. I thought he looked really good uh, last week in Vienna. Lost to Djokovic, but played really well. I think he makes run. You want to give me one dark horse for your uh, week in Paris? Well, actually, it's funny. I was going to say Chorich as well. And the reason is, I think Chorich is, if there were an award for this, the ultimate dark horse. Tell me a tournament where Borna Chorich couldn't be considered a dark horse. Because for me, it's just about everyone. He can make the deep run in majors. He can make a deep run in any tournament he's in. 
I would say the entire 2019, he could not be considered a dark horse. But outside of that, I agree with you. Very good Talking point. Talking about and right now. <laughs> yeah, no, obviously uh, with Paris in mind, one of the things we'll all be looking for, and that turns us to point number three, only a couple of le- weeks left until the year-end championships in London take place for the ATP. Now, there is an event in Sofia, and perhaps it will come down to that, but you imagine a lot of things going to be settled after this week in Paris. Currently, seven of the men in the field set. It's going to be Djokovic, Nadal, Team Zverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, and Andre Rublev clinching after that uh, result in Vienna. In terms of the players still eligible to win, you do have uh, Schwartzman, Berrettini, Goffin, Kareno Busta, Rayonic, Hachinov, Wawrinka, and FAA. So there still are a bunch of scenarios out there for the eighth spot, but Jamie, we don't care about those scenarios. We want to have fun here on the deciding point. Who is your ideal eighth player to round out this ATP Finals? Yeah, listen, we we had this brief conversation before, so it's only fitting that we elaborate it, you know, head on now. <laughs> I'm sticking with my answer from the original question. It's Riley Opelka, and it's you know, a great look, our, our job. We just I want to incite chaos um, in this tournament, <laughs> and putting somebody who can bomb 140 on an indoor hard court and really, you know, just completely wreck draws and round robins. That's him. It's Riley Opelka. So for me, that's a huge one. Um, I think it'd be a ton of fun to see him just go in there and just mess with the entire setup, right? Because otherwise, you've got people who are just clear favorites. But hey, if you get somebody like Opelka serving bombs and feeling good in their rhythm, who knows what can happen, especially in a couple tie breaks. No, I love that answer. I think it's a really good pick. It's funny. I have him near the top. I would say the last player I would like to see, though, is John Isner. Just going to throw that out there. But in terms of the players this came down to me, you know, you'd love to reward like an Umber or like a Dan Evans who have quietly had these really good seasons, not top 10 seasons by any stretch, but really good seasons for where they're at in their career. I think Grigor's been playing really well of late. I think Yannick Sinner would be an incredible addition. But to your point of introducing an agent of chaos, the pick for the this question and any type of question like this is always Nick Kyrgios, right? What tournament does not benefit from an injection of Nick Kyrgios in it? Yeah, no, that that's a great call, especially given his track record against those top guys. You know, when he puts it together and he when he really wants it, you know, he can beat anybody on a tennis court. So now that's a great pick as well. That'd be a ton of fun to see him fill the eighth slot. That's what I'm saying. After all the, we'll say, smack that has been talked off the court throughout this 2020 year, uh, to see him on the court, it would just be delightful. So yeah, I think that is the pick as well. But of course, as I mentioned here on the deciding point, we want to have a little bit of fun as well. Not only talk about strictly tennis-related business, but talk about some of the things these tennis players are doing off the court because obviously... That's where half the humor of being a tennis fan is. Let's talk best Halloween costumes, Jamie, and our friends over at Tennis.com at Baseline.Tennis put together the best 10 looks of this 2020 Halloween season. A lot of good looks, a lot of good candidates. Ultimately, who pulled off the best costume in your mind? I went back and forth on this one. Um, you know, I can't, I, I won't lie. It, it took some hours of consideration. But for me, I, I think I ended up going with Bob Bryant. You know, him and the family, they went with the Nintendo route. I love that. You got to, you got to love all of those characters, the effort there. He goes as, uh, as Waluigi. Actually, it's looking, they said Waluigi, but it looks like he's dressed as Wario. So I'm going to have to go do some further digging on that. But I'm happy if it is Waluigi because, you know, that's more fitting uh, of his build, you know, the big tall guy. But that's just great stuff. That's just great stuff from the family. Yeah, no, I think that's a good call as well. I would say I'm still in my Halloween costume as a homeless person, as you can see from my current appearance. But 
For me, the pick, and this is, again, my bias is ble- bleeding in here as it makes sense. I'm going to go with Osaka dressed as number five. Kid, uh, Codename Kids Next Door has a special place in my heart on a different occasion. Maybe I'll do my impersonation of the character number one for you, Jamie. And uh, again, Co- Codename Kids Next Door, I've had a lot of unintentional comedic moments. Get, because of the series, I think Osaka pulled off number five great. I only want to see her try and do the backflips in the credits like she shows off in her Instagram post. But a lot of good ones. I feel like we got to give a shout out to Annette Conteve in the Tiger King outfit she and her husband pulled off. That's that's bold. For real. Also, can we talk about how long ago that seems? Like, listen, I, I love the reference to the early COVID days, but my goodness, that feels like three years ago, doesn't it? Uh, it's something that I'm kind of happy died. I'm like, I don't need to talk Tiger King anymore. Never watched the series. Maybe that's a that's a rough didn't? point. Wow. That's, Never watched mm. it. Yeah. Again, a poor choices. Too I, late I'm, now. You know, I'm married to the game. Yeah, exactly. Spoilers. I heard there's a killing at the end. Um, But anyways, that was the fun we had. Obviously, those are our fast four points here on the deciding point. We've got one last one for you, our deciding point here on the day. And is there anything more decisive, more controversial than a tennis fan's opinion on who's going to end up with the most men's singles Grand Slam titles? I would say no. I think you would agree with me, Jamie. So let's have some fun with our final deciding point. Novak Djokovic. Losing to uh, Lorenzo Sinego this week in Vienna, 6-2-6-1. One of the worst defeats he's taken, certainly of the past 10 years of his career since he ascended to number one in the world. believe it's only the second time as the number one player in the world he's lost to someone outside the top 40. The only other occasion being a uh, now healthy Juan Martin Del Potro at the Olympics. The deciding point, Jamie, because whenever there's a big loss like this, it inevitably comes up. He's got 17. Federer and Nadal have... 20 does Djokovic catch them yeah I think the answer is still just a resounding yes um, and a result like this while unfortunate and just sort of a bummer for the tennis world for lack of a better word I mean it's just it doesn't change this in my opinion um, because it's not like Djokovic is going out there trying his hardest in this match he's absolutely not caring about this match he was he looked bored the entire tournament you and I both talked about that he didn't look like he wanted to be out there even at all and he wasn't trying um, you even talked to him in the press conference after you know it's not like this was a, a horrible defeat and he was so disappointed with himself you heard him he was like yeah you know this is one that I'm okay with um, and, and so you look at the guy and you're like what are you doing um, Um, But still, it doesn't change the fact that when he wants to lock back in, he is still going to be the favorite at most of the majors that he's playing. And so there's no reason to think that he, he won't catch them, especially, you know, because of a result like this. I agree with you, but here would be the slight counter. A, he left two on the table this season. There's no denying that. He should have won that 2019, uh, that 2020, excuse me, U.S. Open because he was the best player heading into the quarterfinals. He had shown the best form. He r- ran through that Western and Southern Open despite not playing his best tennis and you know, that's one on the table. Obviously, Wimbledon gets canceled this year. More likely than not, he probably wins that event as well. And, you know, at this stage of his career, to leave two on the table, who knows how valuable that might be because it's clear the kiddies, you know, Dominic Team, Alex Zverev, Stefano Tsitsipas, Daniil Medvedev, they're all, Andre Rublev, they're all getting better. They're all coming closer and closer to the primes of their careers. You have Nadal clearly not going anywhere on the clay. And then you just have Djokovic's game style. There's no telling whether it really will translate that well into his mid to late 30s, right? It's so predicated on him being so physically fit, so flexible, tracking down the extra ball, the obvious easy weapon of the Nadal and Federer forehand and not as prevalent in Djokovic's game. 
I'm not saying I don't think he's going to pass it because I really do think we could see him rip off a three Grand Slam year next year, a revenge tour of sorts, even though this was statistically one of his best seasons of his career in 2020. But he left a couple on the table, and that's that's nerve-wracking given you know where he's at in his career. Yeah, and, and look, I... I think I don't think that's a secret. I think he knows that, right? He's going to look yeah. back on the season and he's going to be he's going to be disappointed a bit. Um, and I think that sort of fuels sort of this last result against Sanego is like he's already kind of disappointed with how this season goes. And look, I, I think he'll get back up and be ready for um, ATP Finals. But yeah, at this point, again, though, even though it's unfortunate to see, I, I don't see a world where he doesn't catch them. Like, there's no way he doesn't win at least three more, right? I, I just. There's no yeah. way. And even if Nadal even if Nadal rattles off a couple more Frenches or Fed, you know, magically gets one more, Djokovic has so many more years left in him that I, even if he were to only win one a year, I think he has I think he has that number of years left in his career. See, I think twenty two's the number. I think Nadal maybe two more, maybe, you know, at least one more probably at Roland Garros. I think whoever gets to twenty two wins the count because I don't think Federer's got any more slams. To ask Novak Djokovic to win five more slams after he's turned, what, 33 years old? I mean, has any player won more than five slams after age 33? The answer to that is no. Like, I, I, don't, I think Federer's won four, right, since he turned 33, or maybe it's a—no, I think it is four, and so now you're asking him to win—it's just— it's going to be really, really fun. I think these next three years, that's the race for Djokovic, right? Because eventually, one of these young guys or a couple of them are going to start winning at the slams. You would think. Yeah, I mean, look, we've been saying, you know, when's the big three going to get taken over for a long time? And to me, I think the answer, it's still far way away. Yeah, Federer is more out of the picture given the injuries and the amount of time he's taking off. Nadal sort of in the same camp. But what we saw from this year is when these top guys are good with Australia, Djokovic being the hardcore player, obviously Nadal at Roland Garros on the clay. I mean, these guys are still at the top. And so there's no reason to think that these guys won't run away with more and more titles. It's just a matter of how long do you think Djokovic is going to sustain his level at the top? And and I happen to think it's quite a long time. Yeah, and of course, as tennis fans, we all look forward to seeing that unfold. But that's this week's episode of The Deciding Point. Again, if you want to hear more of our Cracked Rackets content, you have missed any of the action on the Pro Tour these past couple of weeks, be sure to go check out our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who does an incredible job with all of our content in particular. If you're watching this, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss anything else moving forward. But for my wonderful co-host, James Foster, mcdonald and our super producer daniel westoff i'm your host alex gruskin you've been watching the deciding point we hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you all next week